So we are in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2 this morning. Uh, if you have a stone tablet or papyrus or, oh, I guess we're electronics these days. So, you know, like a digital device or something, or maybe even a print Bible. That Gutenberg guy did some good things way back when. Why don't you grab that out and follow along as we go through Philippians chapter 4. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are so grateful this morning that you've given us your word to know you better, to know how to relate to you. We're so grateful for your son who died for our sins and rose again that we may come into your presence as your children. And we pray as your children, that we would learn from your word this morning, that it would penetrate our hearts and our minds and change how we act in the world because we are your representatives. We are here to help people find their way to you alongside the Holy Spirit. We ask that you transform us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Philippians chapter 4. Believe it or not, we've come to the end of Philippians seems like we just started, right? Just kind of zipped right on through, but here we are. And we'll pick up this morning where Josh left off and finish the rest of the book. And I got to admit that with Josh's fantastic summary last week, it was kind of a little hard to figure out what else there might be to share that hasn't already been covered. But of course, Paul, being Paul, has left us a little bit more to chew on as he closes out his letter to the Philippians. And as we close out the letter, I think it helps a little bit to, to look back on what we've learned. And if you remember from way back in chapter one, to set the stage, Jason helped us to consider abounding love. And that love was shown in Paul's abounding love of Christ and his abounding love for the Philippians. And that love, of course, originates in Christ's love for us. And when we deeply consider Christ's love for us and who he is, it helps us to see his surpassing worth. And as we understand that love, the example of Jesus and the gift of eternal life that he's given us produces joy in our hearts. And we should be motivated to share that love and that joy with others. That sharing of the gospel should be evident in our words and our deeds and our character and our growing Christ-like character. Of course, God doesn't leave us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling without help. That Holy Spirit-led growth in Christ is both motivated and enabled by God's grace. And that's something to rejoice in even if that growth is painful and worked out over a long period of time. And by the way, that growth looks different for each of us. So even as we look to the examples of others, we need to recognize that our path of growth is going to be different than theirs was. And similarly, as people come alongside us and we help them with their growth, they won't have a growth path that looks like ours. That's part of relating graciously to each other in the Lord. Relating graciously in the Lord looks different 
from how the world does things. Now, there might be shadows of it among unbelievers, but that's just one way that we're called to magnify our Lord. See, this is done in combination with all those things that Josh talked about last week. Standing firm, agreeing in the Lord, trusting in the Lord through prayer, imitating the Lord, and rejoicing in the Lord always. It's this combination of evidences that makes the believer's life stand out to the world. Consider the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Note that the fruit of the Spirit is all those things in combination. They should all be evident and growing in the heart of the believer. And that looks very different from the world, which may show some semblance of a few of those attributes, but not to the degree or totality that can be found in believers. Because that's only possible through Christ. And folks, it's good different right? It's not just different for the sake of being different. It's not just different for trying to gain attention to oneself. It's different because these things are grace-enabled and magnify our Lord, not ourselves. Now, Paul's famous dialogue on what love is also sheds some light on what our lives should look like. And note, this is for all believers, not just those getting married, okay? Of course, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see the many similarities with the fruit of the Spirit? In particular, that love, as God defines it, is evidenced by all these attributes in combination working together. Again, you may see shadows of this in the world, but not to the degree or totality that can be found in believers especially those who are mature in Christ and are worth imitating. It's only possible through Christ. Only through Christ. Now, if you're at all like me, you're going to look at somebody like Paul or Timothy or Epaphroditus and think, those dudes are like super Christians, you know? My walk isn't anywhere close to looking like that. And this rejoicing always thing, well, it just seems so far away. You know, I got so much stress in my life. And sharing the gospel, I have trouble reminding myself of it. But if that's you this morning, then I hope you'll be encouraged as we look at three parting gifts from Paul. First of all, everyone has a position on the gospel field. Every position is important. And Christ is with us in all circumstances. So let's read together Philippians chapter 4 starting in verse 10. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, please bear with me a little bit as we go through the passage in detail. I'm going to set aside verses 11 and 13, and we'll deal with them a little bit later. But let's go back and think about this first part of it. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Yet, again, skipping those couple verses, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now notice that these verses start, as many have in this letter, with Paul rejoicing, right? In this case, he's rejoicing that the Philippians have, after a noticeable absence, sent material support to help Paul. Now, we know from Acts chapter 18 and verse 3 that Paul was a tent maker by trade and no stranger to using his skills to support himself while on his missionary journeys. However, it's likely that he would have been restricted from doing such work while imprisoned in Rome as the tools of his trade, you know, needles and things like that, could have been enabled his escape. Now, as one who was gifted and appointed by God as a missionary to the Gentiles, Paul's greatest joy was sharing the gospel, whether it's on the streets or in the temples or wherever he could speak. While we can do all things unto the Lord, for someone with Paul's calling, having to work a day job, so to speak, would have been a major distraction to sharing the good news. You can see why he would rejoice in having material support so that he could stay focused. 
I can relate. As a bivocational pastor, it's a major drag to have to spend so much of my days working a day job and not attending more to my family or to this congregation. We have some missionaries in our congregation. Let's look at them as examples. If Christy had more support for her outreach to the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, you can bet she'd be making more trips to Salt Lake City and making more content available. If Taya's work in Moldova was tied to a day job, it would have been nearly impossible for her to quickly shift and respond to the influx of refugees from Ukraine as she did. If Dr. Lyle was flipping burgers at McDonald's, right, we'd be lucky to have just one of his books. Instead, we have dozens to help us understand how science, rightly understood, supports Scripture. Now, Paul is connected enough to the Philippians to know that they wanted to send support, but weren't able to. Now, there, there may have been any number of reasons as to why they weren't able to. And these are reasons that we're probably familiar with today. They could have been a downturn in the economy. There could have been significant local needs in Philippi. There could have been criminal or political unrest, making it especially dangerous or unwise to send money. Those are just a few of the possible reasons. But the lesson for us in that is that there are seasons in life, even when it comes to supporting various ministries. We as givers have to recognize that our giving priorities sometimes need to shift or change. And those receiving the gifts have to be circumspect enough to recognize that a downturn or in giving isn't necessarily a repudiation of their ministry. What we do see with the Philippians, however, is that over time, they demonstrated a pattern of faithful giving. They themselves couldn't be with Paul in the streets of Macedonia or Thessalonica sharing the gospel, but they could support him with prayer and finances to make sure he was able to make the most of his time in those places. And that, of course, brings us to our first point, that everyone has a position on the gospel field. Now, let me preface this next section with a word from 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts, honor the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now the you Peter is referring to are Christians in general. He's not singling out evangelists or pastors or missionaries. Sharing the gospel in word and deed and character is a duty and a privilege. You got that? It's a duty and a privilege that we all share. And yet there are four different positions on the gospel field identified either directly or indirectly in this passage. We're going to call them the missionary, the emissary, the actuary, and the commissary. I'm obviously going to be defining these a little bit differently than Mr. Webster, but hopefully that wordplay will help you remember those a little bit. Now, the missionary 
is one specially gifted and called to day in and day out be a highly visible communicator of the gospel in some way. And that's, of course, Paul in our passage, right? Among our body, that would, of course, be Christy and Taya and Dr. Lyle. In many ways, it'd be a waste of their giftings if they had to be overly concerned with things like fundraising. And so we as a body provide some support to help ease that burden so they can stay more focused on their missions. So the emissary is one specially gifted and called as a go-between. That can be a difficult position as they have to keep the needs of multiple parties, including their own needs, in balance. Epaphroditus was the emissary in this case. He was tasked with the difficult and dangerous job of physically transferring the gifts to Paul, probably the heavy coins that were the currency of the day, from Philippi all the way in Greece, all the way over to Rome and Italy. Okay, That would have either been by foot or by ship. And he would have also relayed spiritual news, not gossip, spiritual news, between Paul and the Philippians. That's a lot of responsibility to bear. I suspect we elders often end up in that position. Next up is the actuary. And the actuary is one specially gifted and called as an organizer. Though not specifically identified in the passage, one or more of the Philippian believers would have had to have organized the efforts to collect the gifts for Paul and get Epaphroditus equipped for the journey. Among our body, we see this in the deacons and the ministry leaders. Finally, the commissary is one specially gifted and called as a provider. That would be the general members of the Philippian church who provided the gifts for Paul and no doubt kept Paul in their prayers. That would be each of you who faithfully tithe and serve and pray as you're able. See, I'm pretty sure that everybody fits into at least one of those positions. And to repeat, regardless of that position, we all share in the privilege and responsibility of sharing the gospel in word and deed and character. And that responsibility is to share the gospel with those in our spheres of influence, right? Whether it's in family members or friends or co-workers, classmates, neighbors, enemies. Well then, if everybody has a position on the gospel field, aren't some positions more important than others? To quote Paul, by no means. Let's look at our second point. Every position is important. So to illustrate the point, think of a sinner trapped in the pit of despair, all right? If the Holy Spirit is working on the heart of that sinner, they can start to see the beautiful daylight way up at the entrance to the pit. But the vertical walls of the pit are smooth and slick. There doesn't seem to be a way out. And then a chain is thrown down to them to help them climb out. The first link in the chain that they grab is the missionary, right? The missionary provides that first bit of hope that the sinner can be free of the pit. The next link in the chain is the emissary. It's a long link that lets the missionary reach the bottom of the pit 
without falling in themselves. The actuary is the next link. It's partly over the edge of the pit and partly on the ground, bringing, bridging between the emissary and the commissary. The commissary is holding on to the actuary on, on one end, but is firmly staked in place on the other, keeping the whole chain anchored. But here's the deal with a chain, with a weight on it dangling over the edge of a pit. If any one of those links in the chain fails, the whole thing falls into the pit. Now, it's obviously not a perfect analogy here, but hopefully you get the point. Regardless of where God has positioned you in this season of your life on the gospel field, your position is important to the whole effort. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, but that would, make it, would, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there may be, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, I want you to notice something else about the importance of the gift. Okay, Paul considers the gifts you sent a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, it wasn't just that they intended to send a gift. They followed through and actually sent it. And Paul recognized that the gift and everything it took to get it to him was a sacrifice. He knew their situation well enough to know that many weren't just giving out of their excess. He knew their like many in the old, of the Old Testament Israelites, bringing a bull or a goat or a bird to the temple, these folks were giving sacrificially. And the humble, gracious heart attitude behind the giving, right? the heart attitude, we talk about that a lot, was what Paul was commending because it reflected Christ. The importance of everyone having participated is commended, of course, in Paul's closing. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He wanted to make sure nobody was left out. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
Now, I think there's another aspect to this closing that we may overlook. See, that gift to Paul would have also indirectly benefited the suffering Roman church. I mean, they're in the heart of enemy territory, so to speak, right? See, there would have been less pressure on them to contribute to Paul's needs while he was in prison. So this humble generosity also served to build bonds of Christian love between the believers in Rome and in Greece. And that brings us to our final point and back to verses 11, 13 that I skipped over earlier. Christ is with us in all circumstances. Starting in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I'd bet that most, pretty much everybody here has recognized at least part of that passage, right? Show of hands. Okay, most of you. Or... It's one of the most quoted portions of Scripture, or I should say, misquoted. See, this is a great way to point out how context matters. Let's look at how the passage is often misquoted and back into Paul's intended meaning, right? Because that's one of the things of Scripture. What's the author's intended meaning? See, how many of you have seen only this portion quoted? I can do all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So taking just as that portion, that gives you all sorts of license to sin, right? Now, more often than not, people will, will take just a slightly longer, larger chunk. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh, that sounds great, right? But see, more often than not, people will interpret that as some sort of Christianized self-empowerment mantra, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That last part gets kind of suppressed a little bit. See, whatever you set your mind to do, you can do. And God will help you in your quest. You know, it's kind of that, you know, dispenses, you know, God dispenses gifts kind of thing. But read in context, okay, what Paul is actually saying is that whatever circumstances you find yourself in during the seasons of your life, Jesus will give you the strength to endure it, right? So you could be rich or poor. You could be in sickness or in health. You could be in prison or on vacation. You could be mocked or celebrated. Whatever the circumstance, stay focused on Christ because he is what lasts, not the circumstance. And also in view here, folks, is our heart attitude. The heart attitude toward our abundance or our lack thereof. See, if if we have been blessed with some amount of abundance, do we put our faith in the abundance or our supposed ability to obtain that? Or are we in a continual state of recognition that all we have is from God, holding loosely onto that abundance? Since God gave it, how would our heart attitude change toward him if he took it away? Of course, the flip side of the coin is when we're struggling, right? 
Are we thankful for what God has given us? Even if that means we barely can keep food on the table? Is our primary focus still on the kingdom? Or do we find ourselves envying those with abundance? Heart attitude. And think of how contrary that is to what the world expects, right? The world expects people to be content when life is good, right? Most of us are pretty content when life is good. It doesn't expect that of folks experiencing hardship, right? But what a testimony to the truth of the gospel for those who can be content regardless of the circumstances. Now, in a moment, we're going to read a familiar passage from the books, the book of Acts. And I want you to really think hard about the setting and the perspective of the jailer. Now, first, the jailer we're going to read about, he was charged with, of course, keeping the prisoners in jail, right? Here's the thing. If they escaped, he paid the price with his own life. Now, let's talk about conditions inside the prison. If you visit a, a modern prison, that's not the nicest of situations, right? But listen to what a Roman prison would have been like. From what we can gather from historical accounts, it would have likely been an underground stone structure, and thus dark and damp and hard. Because there weren't very many prisons at the time, it was probably crowded. How about going to the bathroom, right? Find a corner of your cell. Bathing? Forget about it. Hope you're not scared of rats and bugs. And that guy screaming around the corner? He's got severe mental issues, and he's been there for years. Sound like a pleasant experience? I don't think so. Let's hear what happened to Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So what do you do when you encounter difficult circumstances? Do you complain or whine or grumble? Or do you pray and sing hymns to God? I'll be honest, I'm probably going to be complaining. 
But once in a while, once in a while, I'll have the presence of mind to step back and ask God what he's doing in these circumstances. I don't often get an answer to that question, but it helps to reframe my thinking toward the unusual ways that God works. Ways which glorify Him and not me. If I'm being harassed by somebody, I might, on a good day, pray for their salvation or ponder what circumstances in their life brought them to such a place of despair where they would lash out at me. I imagine that Paul and Silas probably prayed for the salvation of the jailer and the other prisoners while they were in the stocks that night. And how's that for a quick answer to prayer, right? That's pretty cool. And, and by the way, that scene we just talked about in the jail, guess where that took place? Philippi. Paul's first visit to Philippi. And here we are in his letter, and they become some of his greatest supporters on the mission field. Now, being content in your situation doesn't mean that you're not interested in changing it. It doesn't mean that you're burying your feelings about the situation behind some sort of Christian veneer. Okay, people? I imagine some of what Paul and Silas were praying about and singing about was aimed at keeping themselves from being overwhelmed by feelings of fear and anxiety and worry. Do we not see that in many of David's psalms when he pours his heart out to God with his concerns and his fears. And more often than not, at some point in the psalm, we see David coming to one of those but God moments, right? Where through his pain or his fear or his remorse, he recognizes God's love and mercy and redemption in his life. Christ was with him through all circumstances. Christ is with us through all circumstances. And I think that's what Paul is wanting the Philippians and us to mature into. A deep, heartfelt recognition that, to paraphrase Tim Keller, in the end, it's going to be okay because of Christ. Think of all that Jesus promises to us. He's up front in telling us that the world will hate us just as it hated him. We're going to suffer don't let anyone fool you into thinking otherwise. But he also promised to be interceding on our behalf and to send us the Holy Spirit as our comforter while we're enduring these circumstances. And in the end, it's going to be okay. We can glorify him and enjoy him forever, which is what we're all designed to do. And that's the one position on the field we're all gifted. All of us are gifted and called to do. And it comes with another glorious promise that we can rejoice in. He will wipe away different, that deep, heartfelt recognition that it's going to be okay because of Christ. Think of how different that that looks to the world. See, man looks to intellect or money or power or technology or self-made religion for some sort of reassurance or stability. And time and again, these things fail to deliver on their promises. And they always will because they're built on a foundation of lies. Yet man keeps looking to them because each new generation 
is deceived by the same lies. That's why people need to see the difference that Jesus makes in our hearts. Those who are called by God will be drawn to it. But is our confidence in the promises of God really visible in how we live? If it's not, and we're up in the stands watching, we're actually missing out on the joy that Paul has been talking about. As much joy as we felt coming to Christ ourselves, right? There's an equal amount of joy available to us as we help others along their path to redemption from whatever position on the field we're appointed to. Don't think you're up to the task? Here's what Paul would say to you. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's not just talking about material things here, folks. He's talking about spiritual needs as well. He's been talking about that through this whole letter. We are built up spiritually through prayer, through reading the word, and living out the word in everyday life. As we do this, our confidence in God's promises will grow because we will see them in action for ourselves. But we have to be active participants on the gospel field to see them. So I'll end today with the question that Bill posed for us several weeks ago. Are you in the stands or on the field? To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.